1: Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. After the Celtics dropped game one of the Eastern Conference Finals to the Miami Heat. Joining us now from the Ringer. You hear him on the Ringer NBA show as well. You hear him on Bill's pod. It's our friend Michael Pina. Pina, I'm sorry, man. We scheduled this in advance. Like last time when they lost to the Hawks, that was a spur of the moment thing. I'm like, I got to get Pina on to talk about this. We planned this one. I thought it was going to be a win for the Celtics, but man. Just a really, really difficult loss after it felt like they did everything right in the first half. I felt they were going to roll the heat out of the building. And then the third quarter comes around and they get score, outscored 46 to 25. Just a disaster. And now it feels like this is the Celtics team we've become accustomed to seeing over the past couple of years where they just sort of play around with their food. And this is going to be a more difficult series than it needs to be.
3: Yeah, I think that. You can definitely get a little frustrated with some of the mind-numbing mistakes that were made in this game by the Celtics. You had Rob Williams saving uh, a loose ball, passing it to uh, Kevin Love. You have Jalen Brown just in transition, bobbling a pass for no reason. That's just like, I could catch a pass from Marcus Smart, and he didn't. And then it went the other way, and Jimmy Butler went to the free throw line, and then I mean, Jason Tatum's crunch time, or how many travels in a row did he have? How many uh, thro- like passes directly to Jimmy Butler? Did he have um, really just frustrating, preventable turnovers that the Celtics had in this game? But I think to me, like, the story is just the absolutely absurd shot making from the miami heat like the numbers there are they shot 54.1 in the game 51.6 percent behind the three-point line and when you do that based on the shots that they took like there's metrics that gauge what your expected effective field goal percentage would be versus what it actually is and theirs was like 17 or 18 percent higher than it should have been So their shot making is just insane. And Jimmy Butler, what did he finish with? 35, 12 for 25 from the floor, hit a couple threes. The three he hit at the end, it just like bounced. It touched every inch of the rim before going in. Um, You look down at the box score, like everybody on this roster hit three three three-pointers. It's just, it's really tough to beat a basketball team when they do that. And some of those three, some of those shots were really tough ones that were contested. Max Roos had a couple pull-ups over Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. And some of them are just wide open off of costly mistakes. Uh, I, th- I think it was Struis in the corner, hit one to put uh, Miami up 12, I want to say, when they went on that huge third quarter run when Malcolm Brogdon should have closed out on him. He was zoning up on the weak side. Cody Zeller, for some reason, is standing behind the three-point line, and Brogdon takes a step towards Cody Zeller instead of closing out on Max Drews <laughs> in the corner. So, like, just mistakes like that that are just really weird. Um, so, I don't think that the Miami Heat will shoot this well again. They shot 30% from behind the three-point line in the second round. Um, but they also basically defeated the Bucks because of this hot shot making. So, it's really tough to, like, gauge or analyze this team. I mean, when you shoot like this, you just... It's really hard to lose in the NBA. I'll just I'll just say that. So credit to the Miami Heat for that.
1: Yeah, and the Celtics. We know that Joe Mazzulla always went, wants to win the math game, right? In terms of the threes, they didn't get enough up. They only hit ten threes in the game compared to Miami, who hit what sixteen. Mm-hmm. If you told me prior to the game that the Heat were going to hit six more threes than the Celtics and what outscore them by what that off the top, of my head, eighteen points from three point territory, I would have told you you're crazy. This isn't a great shooting team. We've seen that throughout the regular season and into the postseason. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is just the third quarter, because it felt like the Celtics entering halftime. They had all this momentum where they really exposed the Heat's defense, where they were just able to get really easy driving lanes. Like Tatum was getting to the basket. Tatum in the first half had 12 points in the paint. Jalen had 10 points in the paint. Robert Williams had 10. Most of his were of the lob variety, of course. Mm -hmm. So, and if you look at those numbers, those are absurd for the Celtics, right? I mean, they're on pace for 80 points in the paint the memphis grizzlies led the league this year just over 58 then in the second half those driving lanes are closed up by miami and the celtics weren't really generating many good shots there in the third quarter of the game it just it was kind of perplexing to me where the offense just completely fell apart i mean give the heat credit there in the second half for coming out and hitting all those shots and styming whatever the celtics were doing from an offensive perspective But we've seen this movie before because last year in game one of the Eastern Conference Finals against the Miami Heat, they outscored the Celtics 39 to 14. I don't know what's going on after game one of these conference finals, whether it's in Miami, whether it's in Boston, In the third quarter, it just sort of does them in. And I don't know if it was they got a little too confident. They let go of the rope a little bit. To your point, the Miami Heat were hitting a ton of threes. So that's obviously part of the equation. As well, So that's obviously an issue. But the big thing to me, as you mentioned, it is down the stretch is just the turnovers because I'm saying to myself, okay, let's find a way to get Tate on the ball. Right. Because it felt like he just disappeared. I mean, you had the tweet, Pina. What was it like when he checked back in? He had taken like one shot up until the final two minutes of the Mm -hmm. game. And then they finally Joe Missoula calls a timeout, which again, this is another issue where I know we've talked about the timeouts before, but I don't know how he didn't use the timeout in the third quarter. Like we saw Spolstra. 7-0 run to begin the fourth quarter, timeout, and he sort of gets things back on track. But Tatum down the stretch of this game after I was calling, and another issue, and we can address this in a second, I don't know why they didn't run more high pick and roll for him earlier in the game, because that was obviously something they really found that worked for them in the last series at the end. But 114-109, he just gets up in the air and he throws it to Jimmy Butler. 117-110, he travels. 117-110, again, he travels. I mean... This is the best player on the team. This is a guy that just had this 51-point performance. This type of stuff can't happen from Tatum late in the game. Like, it's 114-109. You really have a chance to get back into this game. The coach calls a timeout to get you the ball, and he just throws it away. And another thing I would say is, I don't. and I know Jalen is the second best player on the team, and I've called for them involving Jalen Moore, but I don't think you should be bringing Jimmy Butler into any action. Like, if Jimmy Butler's covering, covering Jalen late in the game, I don't think you should be bringing him into the equation, especially when he already had, what, five steals at that point. He finishes with six. So I don't understand that. Like, if Jimmy Butler's on you, get away. Like, get that guy the hell away. If it's Tatum, get him a screen at the top. Get him a high pick and roll so he's going downhill. I didn't understand the lack of late-game execution. That was really frustrating.
3: The one thing that I would say to explain why they were going at Jimmy is – he played, what, 44 minutes, I think, and he was doing everything for them on the offensive point. end. And he's playing on this ankle that was the size of a grapefruit after Game 6 against the next five days ago. So they were hope And, like, Jimmy hit some uh, absolutely absurd shots, but there were stretches in this game where he had no lift, and, like, it was looking pretty wobbly for him. Um, getting to the basket, he struggled with uh drawing fouls i know he finished with 10 free throws but it wasn't the same he didn't have the same pop that he normally does now the mid-range jumpers were falling the baseline jumpers were falling he had the good fortune of uh being able to hunt peyton pritchard for some reason i I, i'm a little oh my god (laughs) dumbfounded by that one um and i guess like this is changing the subject slightly but like did the Celtics, in your opinion, treat this game like it was a game one where they just played a game seven um, on Sunday? And what I mean by that is like, if you look at the minute allotment, like, I don't know who, besides Tatum, obviously he played big minutes, but like Smart only playing 34 minutes. I, I, was he hurt? I don't really, I didn't, they didn't really.
1: T- yeah, he went, he went back to the locker room for something. He was dealing with some sort of ankle issue. And then Jalen had the hand situation which is a whole different story because he had six turnovers in this game. And now I thought the hand thing was over in the Atlanta series. And now he's dealing with something in terms of the hand. I saw Bill tweet out that it happened during a Duncan at the end of the last game that he ended up re-aggravating that. But he had some of those careless turnovers that we're used to. But to your original point, yeah, they treated it like it was just, they were almost like experimenting with things. And they almost got away with it the way they played in the first half. But the Pritchard thing, I got to tell you, that is infuriating. I have no idea, Pino, why Pritchard is coming into the game It when Jimmy's on the floor. I mean, think about it. They checks it. He checked in in the first quarter. Two minutes left. I'm like, why is Pritchard playing? <laughs> Butler scores right over him, gets the switch, right? Mm-hmm. Then in the third quarter, he puts Pritchard back in the game. This is when the Celtics couldn't get any stops, okay? In the third quarter, Joe Mazzulla decides, let's go back to the Pritchard thing, as if Jimmy didn't hunt him in the first half. So right away, he doubles a, Well, first of all, Jimmy's on the floor. So he doubles him. He ends up finding Martin for a wide open three because Pritchard's on him. They have to come over and double him. Then later on at the end of the quarter, he needs help on a Lowry drive. I don't know why Al isn't staying in the corner, but he needs help. And it leads to another three to make it 103 to 91. So like this whole idea of playing Peyton Pritchard, I don't get it in this specific matchup when Jimmy Butler is on the other side of the court, because I would say really outside of like LeBron. He's the guy in the NBA that mismatch hunts more than anybody else. I mean, if you watched any of that Knicks series, you could see it, right? So what I'm trying to figure out is what happened to Grant? Like Grant played a lot at the beginning of the Philly series, then no game six or seven. And he was pretty good against Miami last year. And my whole thing about Pritchard is it's like I don't understand the upside, right? This guy shot 36.4% from three. Grant was north of 39%. So if you want to steal a couple of minutes, I would rather go with Grant rather than Peyton Pritchard. I just, I mean, I guess I just don't understand the whole theory of why Pritchard's playing. Is it to push the ball? Like, what's the idea there?
3: (laughs) Um, It's a great question. I mean, I think he's a better three-point shooter than his numbers. I mean, this year it was whatever, like his minutes were spare and... Um, yeah he's
1: been better in the past yeah and he's been like 39 40 ish
3: I mean I think he's a really good player it just caught me by surprise because obviously he hasn't been in the rotation obviously I guess Missoula saw something when Pritchard matched up against this I mean this team is pretty small and you know they play Gabe and Lowry Caleb Martin um and like Increasing the tempo is it could be. I thought they were playing fine with pace though. I like. I don't. I'm just kind of flabbergasted by it to be honest with you. And going back to Grant Williams, like I thought he played really well in last year's Eastern Conference Finals. He averaged 30 minutes a game. He went and he played in the same division in high school against Bam Adebayo and is really comfortable defending him. And if you don't want to double Bam Adebayo, then put Grant Williams on him and you're going to get some good stuff. He's going to take a couple charges. He's going to frustrate Bam. Bam played really well tonight too. And I think him being aggressive in this series is something to keep an eye out on because in the Eastern Conference finals, I think the game that Jimmy missed, Bam was super aggressive. They won that game in the garden, but he was very up and down in terms of his field goal attempts and they need him to attack those switches. And I thought that the Celtics defended him well, but he just hit really difficult shots. But like the rotation for the Celtics is, it's wonky. I mean, I, I yeah. we're obviously recording this after the game, and I'm sure someone asked Joe Mazula what was going on with those Peyton Pritchard minutes, particularly—I mean, I guess if Smart is hurt or something was going on with Smart, who re-entered the game late, um, then that would answer it. But for Pritchard to start the fourth quarter, I was like, what is— what is going on here? This is... uh, No idea. Really interesting. uh, He wasn't in the rotation. He hasn't been in the rotation. Um, So, game one of the Eastern Conference Finals, not the time to break that out, I would say. But I will say, like, the numbers are going to be really... uh, They're going to pop out from this game. Just the shot making again. I'm going to go back to it with Miami. But I thought that the Celtics defensively played, like like they executed their game plan almost to a T for really long stretches in this game like long enough stretches to win and like every time they would get four or five stops in a row which is really hard against a team that has Jimmy Butler on it like their switches were on point um they were doubling, rotating, uh boxing out um everything was really clean and, like, every time they would get four or five in a row, they just couldn't capitalize on the offensive end. That's when the turnovers came. And, like, one play that sticks out in my mind is they get a string of stops, and I think they're up double digits in the second quarter, and uh, Jimmy Butler backdoors with, like, four seconds left on the shot clock. Malcolm Brockton just completely falls asleep, fouls him, and won. And those are the types of plays that, like, let a team like Miami, it gives them life. And, like, you can't do that. Like, I thought that that stretch in the second quarter when it looked like, the, honestly, the game was, like, getting really rocky for Miami. That play was, a, I think, a huge swing moment, in my opinion. And you just have to be locked in every possession defensively against this team. And they were for the most part, but just not enough.
1: Yeah. And it's just those little things, too. Like, I, the play that comes to mind now that you mentioned that is Al takes a wing three, and goes to chase his own rebound. If you're going to chase your own rebound there, you better get it because if you mm-hmm. don't get it, you have like one of the best rebounders of his generation down there in Kevin Love. Also, one of the best outlet outlet passers rather of his generation mm-hmm. in Kevin Love. So what happens? Kevin Love gets the rebound, Al's out of position and Love throws it up the court, it's an easy layup down the other way. Like, that type of stuff can't happen. Like, if you're on the wing, Al Horford cannot be going. Like, if you're on the opposite wing, it's okay, but you can't be going there if you're the guy taking the shot. You've got to get back in that particular situation. And look, he needs help from the other side, too. Like, somebody else should have been dripping back after that happened, but it's stuff like that that aggravates you. But to your point about Grant last year, so last year in that series, he was a plus 42 third on the team. The net rating with Grant on the floor was plus 10.9 points per 100 possessions. So the Grant mystery has been a weird one all season long. I don't get it. I guess I just think that Grant's a better player than Joe Mazzulla does. I mean, I just, I think that he's switchable. I mean, I'm not telling you that he can stop Jimmy Butler. Nobody really can, but I don't think you have to do everything in your power. Like Jimmy may go by him a couple of times, but... I feel much better switching Grant Williams onto Jimmy than a lot of the guys on the Celtics, quite frankly. Like, he's going right through guys like Malcolm Brogdon. What's going to happen to Peyton Pritchard? We saw it. So I would much—I think that in Game 2, they should go back to Grant. You mentioned the BAM situation in tonight's game. I thought he was outstanding. I was petrified. Like, this guy scares the shit out of me because we've seen all the big games that he's had over the Celtics over the past few years. And it was a weird series last year, right? There was four games where he took less six shots or less. Mm-hmm. It didn't make any sense. And we saw in the bubble, I would argue that he was the best player in that series in terms of when they beat the Celtics in that conference finals. He was outstanding in that series, and he had a couple of big games this year. But one of the interesting things I thought, and he did hit some tough shots, but it almost felt like Pina, and correct me if I'm wrong, I wonder if this is because they don't want the ball pinging around and some of their shooters to get going, but he took 10 twos outside the restricted area, and he hit seven of them. On the season, he's got that nice little push shot. He had 47% of his short mid-rangers via cleaning the glass and 45% on long mid-rangers. So my hunch here is that this is a math thing, that they're going to live, because especially in the first half, if you notice, especially when Rob's on him, obviously, Mm -hmm. he's backing up and they're almost conceding that shot to Bam. So I'm wondering if that's a game plan thing where they're saying, hey, let's make Bam a shooter instead of letting him get into the handoff game and all that different type of stuff, or bam driving if rob or al is up on bam drive by and then he's either going to get a layup or kick because he's a pretty good passer for a big man right he's going to find open shooters great playmaker. so i work yeah i wonder if that's just like sort of the game plan that joe Mazzulla and company came up with is hey let's let bam be a jump shooter because we much rather be beat by bam taking a long two or a mid-ranger rather than bam being able to play make or get to the basket kick it out to open shooters
3: No, I think you hit the nail on the head. Like It's simple math. Uh, He's a pretty good shooter. He takes jump shots in the paint, which basically no one in the NBA does. He knocks them down at a decent clip, but two is less than three. Um, When he gets guys going on those DHOs, Strews, Duncan Robinson played in this game, which kind of surprised me, to be honest with you, and they didn't really go at him at all, which also was a little frustrating (laughs) if you're the Celtics. Um, You want to take advantage of those minutes. Yeah. Um, So, no, I mean, like with Bam, yeah, keep him out of the restricted area. Try to contest everything you can. Make it tough. He hit tough shots. You got to tip your cap. That goes back to just like their low shot quality and um, their incredibly high effective field goal percentage in this game. I will say, now that we're talking about Bam, one thing that was really fascinating to me is the matchups with the starting fives. Um, Al Horford starting the game on Jimmy Butler. I don't know if we're going to see that again. I thought that was, like, a really... It was interesting, but a little cute for me. Like, I don't get it. (laughs) Like, I I thought that... I guess, like, they were really scared of Kevin Love's three-ball like, Rob Williams, it was, cl- it was clear. Like, there was one play where Jimmy had a driving layup because Rob Williams drifted back to Kevin Love before Kevin Love had even taken a shot or touched the ball in the game. And it's like, they clearly respect his three ball. He had a couple ones. He had a trail one. Um, he's good, no doubt about it. Went cold throughout the entire second round. But, like, putting Rob on Kevin Love and letting him help off of him might have just been the smart way to just not overthink things. It's game 1. I'm I'm assuming that they're going to go back to that matchup, put Al Horford on Bam. It's a better uh a uh, better one-on-one situation there for the Celtics if you're going to isolate. Um Horford's comfortable switching onto uh Jimmy if they run the pick and roll and I guess like putting him on um Jimmy does neutralize the pick and roll action a little bit, but like that was just a very curious decision, an interesting one, but a curious one, in my opinion, and I I don't know if we're going to see that going forward.
1: Yeah, I'm wondering if part of the thought process there was, well, he's going to get a screen anyway, and if we stick Jalen on him at the beginning of the game, he's going to get screened off. But I would say this, like I, I, I noticed that in these games, and maybe part of it is just, hey, If that happens, let's have Al off him a little bit and dare Jimmy to take jump shots. And Jimmy, like entering this game in the postseason, was 34 of 80 on pull-ups, 42.5%, 9 of 28 on pull-up threes, 32.1%. So maybe it was, hey, let's dare Jimmy to be a jump shooter, but obviously it didn't work because he got to the free throw line 10 times in the game. But going back to the whole idea of like the switching, and we saw it with Pritchard, Mm -hmm. where you're having to help him. And I I know I'm singling out Pritchard because he didn't even play that much in this game. But in general with them... I do feel like at times they, they sort of like give up on the switch too easy. Do you know what I mean? Like, and I know this is sort of their ethos going back to last year where they were the most switchable team in the NBA and it made them last year the best isolation defense in the league, which of course is not the case this year. But especially with Butler, like I'm okay if it's Bam setting the screen Butler's not a great shooter. I know he's a good shot maker. He can hit shots. But I would be fine going underneath those every once in a while rather than just giving away the switch where he gets on a bigger defender, whether it be Al, whether it be Rob or even in the case of it. I know Derek White blocked him at the rim at one point tonight, but I do feel like you've seen the two guys that he's going the two guys that actually played a decent amount that he was going after. Derek White and Brogdon like I think you can do a better job of getting around that rather especially considering this isn't Steph Curry like he's not a Curry level shooter like I think you can get back around that and get on the other side and pick up Jimmy Butler's I would like to see them maybe not switch as easily as they do and I felt bad for Jalen at points during this game because and like the turnovers are a big issue and I'm kind of worried about this hand situation now. But there's possessions where Jalen covered like four guys, the entire possession. And like mm-hmm. he's just switching on everything and nobody else is like getting through anything. So I wish at times they would do that. Just get go underneath it with Butler, pick him up on the other side. He doesn't want to take the pull up. If he settles for a pull up, I'm, I'm considering that a win for the Celtics. And I know he's going to hit some of them. But I'd much rather that than every time this gets this guy gets in the lane, Pina. It's, okay, jump stop, I'm going to fake this way, I'm going to fake this way, I'm going to get hit, I'm going to get to the free throw line. So make them hit, pull up jump shots. I'd much rather that be the case.
3: Yeah, I think that they'll switch up the coverages as the series goes on, for sure. They like switching, they like dropping. They like dropping, helping, fighting over, contesting from behind, um, but going under the screen. Like I'll have to look at the numbers to see if they actually did do that in this game. No, no possessions, like really spring to mind off the top of my head as we talk. But they might have done it a couple times in this game. Um, even just like, especially when it's Pritchard or when it's White, like. It's weird to say, yeah, we want Derek White to show and recover and stick with his man and we wanna avoid the switch and avoid that matchup for someone who made an all defensive team who's really good. Yeah. Um, but as the series goes on, you just gotta like understand in the rhythm of a game that Jimmy, once he starts to feel it, like it if he he knows who he wants to go up against. And so when he is targeting Derek White, it is for a reason. And he knows he can get to his spot, rise, shoot, make it every single time. So you want to throw different coverages at a great player like that. And I thought Jimmy like was just a maestro tonight in a lot of ways. Obviously, he hit tough shots. But when they did double, when they did blitz, he got out of it um, in the post. He kicked out, I think, to Struce in the corner, I want to say, late in the game for that three when they finally sent a lot of help, aggressive help. Um, so he was great. And this just might be one of those games where you got to tip your cap and the shooting was ridiculous and it's a five-game series. Like, that's not impossible. But yeah, yeah. Um, end of the day you got to make it tough and to your point you got to switch up the coverages and I I do want to look at to see uh what exactly they did throughout the game because I know they did a bunch of different stuff
1: yeah it's it really is predatorial like when he sees somebody checking in like he sees Brogdon checking in or in the case tonight Pritchard checking in or Derek White checking in it's almost like it goes off in his head like okay this is this is where I'm going I'm going after. This guy, he's just he's so annoying to play against because he's he's so good, man. He's like he's you know how Harden always had that ability to draw fouls. He's Harden, but he actually has balls. You know what I mean? Like he actually is going to do something in a big game. He's not going to just completely piss down his leg and not show up for a big game. Butler, that's that's what he's made his career out of. Like he's a much better postseason player than he is a regular season player. And I think part of it is. You can't play the way that he plays for, and I don't want to even say 82 games with him, 65 games, whatever it is. You can't play that way during the regular season, right? Because you take so much punishment playing the way that he does. But the other thing I would say, just on the flip side of that, if you juxtapose the two stars, everything for Miami ran through Jimmy Butler. And I felt like the Celtics... They didn't do enough of letting Jason Tatum sort of be the primary ball handler. And part of that, I would assume, is because Smart was so good in the first half where he had the 10 assist, They were getting easy lobs to rob and stuff along those lines. Mm-hmm. But when the offense was struggling and sputtering, especially at the start of the third quarter, midway through the third quarter, that's when I think the Celtics have to open up and actually do some. And maybe it's just not in their ethos. They don't want to miss match hunt. But I would say what we saw at the end of the Philly series, when they actually did miss ma- match hunt. They got easy baskets that way. Whether it was Tatum taking Melton in the post because he's actually really good in the post, whether it he was just getting a switch onto Maxi, or especially the big one, get Joel Embiid out in space. And if you go back to the first half, Miami it felt like played a ton of zone, and the Celtics sort of ran him out of that zone because they were just driving through it and getting easy opportunities, especially Jalen Brown. And it didn't feel like they played a lot of that zone in the second half of this game. And I do feel like that's a way where you can get Tatum to get some mismatches, get Jimmy Butler off Jason Tatum, get him going up against smaller defenders. They gave Vincent to the world or bigger defenders the Kevin loves of the world. So I don't believe in this game they did nearly enough of the mismatch hunting, which we know on the other side, Miami's going to press that button. Jimmy's going to press that button the entire series.
3: No, you're absolutely right. Um, I think they left a lot of meat on the bone. Honestly, the Celtics did offensively. I mean, If you look at the numbers, they had a pretty good offensive rating for this game. Nothing terrible. Uh, A winnable offensive rating, what they shoot 40% from behind the three point line. Like it wasn't a bad offensive output. But in terms of, especially, I know we focus a lot on crunch time and deservedly so in a game like this, but like their intentionality just wasn't there. They weren't deliberate with what they should have been doing. Um, It's okay to run a high pick and roll with Jason Tatum every single time down the floor. Like that is okay, that is allowed. It is not illegal. And <laughs> I, I I assume that, you know, going forward in this series that's something that we'll see a lot more of, but I just do wonder if maybe like it was Tatum tired? He played a ton of minutes in the second round. Um that series just ended. Like I I just wonder if that's a factor honestly in a game like this, but cuz he made a lot of errors at the end that were just very i mean he made them last year too so it's not yeah. like uh they're completely out of the norm but these were very just bizarre plays from such a great offensive talent um but no you're right like the mismatch hunting really there should have been more of it and i think that the Miami Heat are super smart and they make it difficult to just attack a gabe vincent because there's always like bodies behind and bam is just a genius but they got to do more of that stuff for sure um as the series goes along and i think they will
1: yeah well and to your point the shot making was obviously massive for miami in this game and you mentioned the offensive rating it was good for the celtics you look at miami their half-court offensive rating in this game was a 108.5, which would have been, of course, the best in the NBA that's, that's cleaning the glass. Their overall offensive rating was a 128.1. So, I mean, you come up with a couple of critical spots. And even with as poorly as that third quarter went, you still had a chance late. It was a three-point game. You had an opportunity late in the fourth quarter to come back and win this thing. And unfortunately, the Celtics just couldn't. maybe you're right. Maybe that's what it was about Tatum, that, hey, you're going on two days and you have this heat team that's been resting up for you and Jason Tatum just that's got to be one of the highest usage rates of his career the game against Philadelphia Mm -hmm. and especially the way that the third quarter went right where it was literally four straight possessions that he went at Joel Embiid and in the first half of that game he was doing a lot too in terms of manipulating inside the three-point line he was six of nine twos outside the restricted area in the first half of that game so that could be it, that he was sort of tired and they wanted to get him off the ball a little bit more. But I just don't believe it's a good idea to have Tatum off the ball. And like you said, maybe this was just he was tired, but he's got to gear up now for Friday night. He's only going to have, what, one day off between this. I don't think it's a good idea to have Tatum off the ball with Jimmy Butler. I think I'd much rather have Tatum on the ball, and I think that's an easier way to get him switched off and sort of get him an advantage that way going downhill. But I do think... So just, Pina, before we let you go, game two adjustments for me, the first one would be have Tatum handle the basketball more, get him more high picket rolls, get him going a little bit because he can not get to his pull-up game that way. And we saw the pull-up really came alive against Philadelphia late in that series. And the other thing is I would take the Pit- uh, the Peyton Pritchard club out of the bag. I-, I would not be playing Peyton Pritchard in this series. And I would t- I-, I know I just basically said that he's a golf club but you get my point i would i would put grant williams in the rotation i think grant we saw last year i don't know what it is about this coaching staff compared to last coaching staff where the coaching staff last year really really liked grant this coaching staff seems to have soured on him and look there's been times this year where his defense has not been good as good as it was a year ago but i don't think he did anything wrong in the philly series i I don't think he did anything where you say hey Grant Williams definitely shouldn't play the rest of the postseason, but it just, I don't know, it's just, the whole Grant thing to me all year has been weird, and I was shocked tonight when I saw Peyton Pritchard getting minutes in the first quarter and not Grant. I guess maybe part of it is that they want those, when it's only one wing, when it's either Jalen or Tatum by themselves with one big Al or Rob, they Mm -hmm. want three guards, because we did see that Brogdon... Derek White, Marcus Smart lineup. I do like that, but I don't like it when it's Pritchard instead of one of those other guys because Brogdon's clearly the worst defender out of the Smart White trio, Smart White Brogdon trio, but he's a much better defender and he's much bigger than Peyton Pritchard. I would just give Grant some minutes. And what's Grant can I, Grant's a good three-point shooter, despite the fact the numbers are down in the second half. He still finished close to 40% as a three-point shooter this year. So those would be my adjustments. More high screens for Jason Tatum, and I am... I, this is not an adjustment. I am kind of concerned about this Jalen thing, though, because he was losing the ball left and right like we saw last year, and he was holding the hand. We saw them working on the hand in one of the huddles. And the big thing for me is no more Peyton Pritchard like Grant play. And I do feel like Grant gives this team a spark whenever he plays. Like, there's an energy about Grant. He gets into it with guys. He sort of got into it with Embiid at the beginning of that series. Remember that whole thing? So mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't mind seeing more Grant, and or seeing Grant at all, I should say.
3: To be honest with you, like, yeah, I would like to see Grant. Beyond that, Grant or Hauser in this series, to be honest. Like I don't, Oh yeah, he disappeared. I don't think Hauser can get I don't I don't think he's that much of a liability, honestly, defensively. And I say that out loud and Jimmy Butler would just like completely bury him under the court um if he enters the game in game two. But um honestly like this is really like boring stuff but like don't have jason tatum jalen brown and al horford go three for 15 behind the three point line uh when the heat do miss their shots in game two run you get a lot of really good stuff in transition on this team and they did it was why they went up in the they were running off makes too and got a lot of really good looks in the first half it's why they pushed their lead to double digits it's how they came back in the second half um, and cut the lead to, what, four or three or something like that pretty late. Uh, I think the transition game is huge because Miami's just super disciplined in the half court. But, yeah, I I, I think, like, you don't overreact to this, honestly. It's very tempting, to because you lost a game one at home and it's the conference finals. But I just don't think that Miami's offense will show up like they did in game one in any other game in this series. I could be proven wrong, but I just, it's like historic shot making. I don't know. I just, you know, like when that happens, there's really little that you can do.
1: Yeah. And to the point you make about Tatum, the threes, he only took three. In the second which half. Is, this
2: yeah. is, or, yeah. or in the game. Yeah. And he in took the none, game, of the,
1: none he, in the second half. Yeah. Yeah. He only took three threes in the entire game, which is, you would think he would, be taking more threes, considering what he did in Game Seven, and to my idea about getting him more involved in terms of running the offense, he only had the one assist. Now he easily could have had more, as we know. Like he fed one to Jalen, and Jalen just completely lost the ball going up for a dunk. But what we saw is Jason Tatum as a playmaker has matured a ton this year. So, and some of us had him as four assists as part of a parlay, which didn't hit. Although the money line didn't hit either for the Celtics. I had. Tatum, 30 points. Tatum, four assists. Brogdon, 15. Brogdon did get to the 15. They had 19. Brogdon, two threes. And Celtics on the money line. So I hit three of the five. It doesn't count, though. You don't win anything for that <laughs> penis. So maybe that's why I want Tatum more involved, so he can get his assists. Thanks to our friends at FanDuel for the parlay we had. But, I I mean, I thought I was going to hit it. In the first half, he had, what, 18 points at halftime. I'm like, oh, he's definitely going to get so three close, assists. So close, man. You were so yeah. close. And they're going to win. They're definitely going to win this game. Man, I just feel like, oh, they. I, oh, the way they came out, Pina, I was hyped. I'm like, they are driving the, they are getting to the rim whenever they want. And then they come out of halftime and man, it's going to be a tough series. So my pick prior to the series was Celtics in six. Mm -hmm. I'm not ready to come off that yet because I do feel like you could categorize this as, and I know it was some shot making and all that, but in some sense, when you give up that when you give up forty six in the third quarter, be categorized as a stinker. I had a Jimmy game, slash Bam game, and a stinker. So I'm gonna still stick with six. What was your prediction prior to the series?
3: I had Celtics in six as well. And sticking with it I'm or seven? hundred percent sticking with that. Yeah. I'm pretty confident with that. Um like they're just so much more talented, they're so much deeper. As the series goes on, I think that that will prevail and Jimmy is amazing. Jimmy, Kyle Lowry, Bam. There's just a lot of weight on their shoulders. I mean, Kyle Lowry in the second quarter, what was that? Like, I mean, I know he's been playing, oh. like, great basketball in this postseason. But that was uh, that was vintage. Like, I was not anticipating that at all. So uh, I don't know if we'll see that degree of uh, just, like, them being able to blitz the celtics with jump shots again um like the celtics did a great job protecting the rim etc so uh stick to what they did keep the defensive intensity like it was um communicate get back in transition don't let kevin love beat you with any outlet passes and i think they're in pretty good shape
1: yeah it's a good point on the love thing, also the Lowry thing. How many years are you going to have to deal with this guy, Pina? Going back to the bubble. That guy was annoying in the bubble. That series should have never gone seven games against Toronto, although we do have the taco play in that series, too. Remember that? like of
3: course. he's <laughs> <it's> great.
1: <laughs> he didn't do anything. They still hit the three. Who was it that hit the three?
3: O.G. Ananobi.
1: Yeah, O.G. Ananobi, right. That's That's who it was. And then last year, he's doing Lowry things after he came back after the two-game absence. Mm-hmm. So I just... I want that guy out of my basketball watching (laughs) life. No disrespect to him and his family, but the charge taking, I just, I can't do it anymore. All right. That is Michael Pina from the ringer. You hear him on the ringer NBA show as well. He's on Bill's pod. Pina, thank you so much for the time, man. We really appreciate it. And, and, enjoy the lakers nuggets game on thursday it'll be less stressful you're not as invested right it'll be although you're pretty invested in Jokic, man i'll say that you're pretty invested in Jokic.
3: does it come across that way i'm trying to <laughs>
1: <laughs> i'm trying to
3: tone it down <laughs> dude failing. he's so good he's amazing he was so
1: good you know before we go you know my favorite part about the Jokic thing is like everybody's acting like the lakers figured something out in the second half It's like, well, the Nuggets had Aaron Gordon in the dunker spot. So Anthony Davis could just come over and muck everything up. I'm pretty sure Jokic is going to be able to figure out Rui, like as if Rui is the Jokic stopper. I mean, unbelievable. It's like, who was that guy back in the day that said he was the Kobe stopper? Ruben Patterson. Patterson? (laughs) Yeah, Ruben Patterson.
3: Yeah. And Rui Rui Hachimura, not, I don't think Jokic is losing sleep over that matchup. I'm not going to lie. I think the (laughs) Nuggets will be fine. I, I, I'm confident in that.
1: All right, that is Michael Pina. Pina, thanks so much for the time, man. We appreciate it. Of
3: course, dude. Thank you.
1: Welcome back into Off the pike. Great stuff there from our guy, Michael Pina. I love having Pina on because he's the voice of reason. He calms me down. You still got a lot of time in the series if you're the Celtics. I expect him to bounce back and win on Friday, but that was just difficult. That third quarter, I still, I cannot comprehend the no timeout from Joe Mazzulla. And one other thing I'd mention is, And we mentioned this with Chad Finn the other day is, can we stop with the wired up segments? If you want to show me the wired up segments, don't take away some of my TV. I want the whole picture where I can see the game. I don't need to see Malcolm Brogdon talking to his teammates. And another thing I told Chad Finn about this the other day. How do we miss made baskets? How is that possible? You're missing made baskets in the Eastern Conference Finals. Pick it up. And by the way, Reggie Miller, we thought he'd be bad. He was absolutely atrocious tonight. Now, at one point during this game, Reggie Miller said that you need to hit free throws on the road. <laughs> Thanks, Reg. I think you need to hit free throws at home, too. And then the other thing he said is when Peyton Pritchard came in in the f- first quarter, he said, well, they went to Peyton Pritchard in game seven. No, they fucking didn't go to Peyton Pritchard in game seven. Did you not watch it, Reggie? Peyton Pritchard played in game seven in garbage time. He didn't play in the actual game. He made it like this thing like, well, they went to him. No, they didn't go to him in game seven. Oh, and I do like Van Gundy. I think Van Gundy's good. Obviously, everybody loves Harlan. He's awesome. But man, and Harlan did have a great call tonight. At one point, he said "Jimmy freaking Butler," which I thought was awesome. You don't ordinarily hear that on a broadcast. The word "freaking," so that was pretty cool. All right, let's get to a couple of calls. I'm sure you guys are fired up after this one. Six one seven three nine six seven one seven two. The number. All right, who's up first?
0: Hey, Brian. It's Jack from down on the Cape again. Uh, frustrated after yet yet another Stelpix loss at home in the playoffs here against the heat. I mean, the entire time I was just questioning, why do we have just four people cleared out and four smart Tatum Brown to just dribble a couple of times and try and make something happen. I mean, the offense is non-existent. Missoula needs to create some plays, needs to call timeouts. I mean, that 46 point third quarter, it was just unbelievable. And again, I mean, we're facing Spolstra, we're facing the Heat, the zombie Heat. They're not going to go away. They're always going to be persistent. Butler's always going to get to the line. Adebayo's always going <laughs> to cook us around a foul line. I mean, we've seen this before. We need to act on it. We just can't hope that Marcus Smart is going to have a fantastic assistant turnover game. You you have to do more. I mean, the entire second and a half, I'm just, you know, pounding my hands on the table. Just, on, and just disbelieve at what I'm watching. I mean, again, bad Missoula game, bad Jalen turnover game. I mean, we have to be able to do more against this team. Uh, I don't think they'll score as much next game. Thanks. Uh, hopefully, we turn it around the next game.
1: Yeah, a lot of good points in there. And one of the other things I'd mention is... The timeout, we've referenced that. I don't know how Miami scores 46 points in the third quarter. Joe Mazzula doesn't call a timeout. We see Eric Spolstra, who is widely considered to be the best coach in the NBA. The Celtics go on a quick 7-0 run to start the fourth, and he uses a timeout. Like, at this point, you're not teaching the guys a lesson by holding on to your timeouts in the playoffs, you need to help your team out. So I have no idea why Joe Mazzola didn't use a timeout there. It's something we've been harping on all season. Some people think it's overrated that we talk about the timeouts. Well, this is why we do it, because we're afraid that that situation was going to carry itself over into the postseason. They need to call a timeout there. The other thing you referenced, the Jalen situation, the six turnovers for for Jalen, it goes without saying that it's too much, but I'm concerned now. Like, He's getting his hand worked on in the huddle. We saw this earlier in the postseason going back to that series against Atlanta where he got hurt prior to the postseason, and he had some of those careless Jalen turnovers. The Tatum ones, I'm not as concerned about long term. Obviously, in the moment, you're fucking pissed where he throws the ball right to Jimmy and then he has the back to back travels. You're irritated in the moment. But Jason Tatum overall has done a much better job in this postseason compared to last year as it pertains to the turnovers. They're down basically to a game. So I don't expect that to carry over for Tatum. I'm more concerned about the turnovers carrying over for Jalen Brown. That would be a concern for me going forward when it comes to that. All right, who's up next?
2: Brian, it's David from Kentucky. Man, uh, Celtics fall in game one. Uh, and can this team just tell us if they want to win a championship or not? Um, it's, it's right there in front of them. We see it, you know, in the first half of tonight. And even for that first, what was it, um, 90-something seconds coming back from the the third quarter into the fourth. but um, I, I just don't, I don't know, um if that's what they want, uh, cause I'd like to know, cause if they just don't want to win one, I'll stop watching, save my time, save my blood, my blood pressure from rising and, and, uh, I don't know, maybe just have a, a better overall life quality. But if they do want to win, it's right there in front of them. Uh, I don't think playing <laughs> Pey- Peyton Pritchard, uh, is, is the way to get there. Uh, I don't think that, uh, teams going on a 40 to 25 run or 45 25 run on you in a quarter, and you taking zero timeouts during that time uh, is the way to get there. Uh, the lack of intensity, uh, the lack of focus, it, it's all the same stuff. Uh, and I just, I want to know uh, what does this team want to be? Um, because and the world's in front of them if they want to play for it. But still eight wins away. Thanks for the show. Uh, love it as always. Uh, thanks. All
1: right. Great stuff there. That was an awesome call. <laughs> I like that too. If you don't want to win a championship, just let us know. Because we've gone over it how many times. We chatted with Tim Bonteps about this in our preview pod. The Celtics just have this propensity to play around with their food. They come off this super high. They steal game six. Jason Tatum has the huge shots. He has 51 in the closeout game. In game seven, you're feeling like you're on top of the world. They figured it out. And then they have this game where they give up 46 points in the third quarter. It's incredibly infuriating. And... We mentioned this with Pina, the Pritchard thing. I have no idea. I don't know if this is Joe just trying to be more creative. I'm really trying to figure out what it was, what the rationale was. And I didn't see Joe Mazzulla being asked about this after the game. I have no idea why Peyton Pritchard, you thought he would be a good matchup in this series. In fact, I would argue that this would be one of the worst matchups for Peyton Pritchard. It would be worse than playing him against Philadelphia because Jimmy Butler right now is a better guy in terms of going after a mismatch than James Harden. He is the one of the best guys in the entire NBA. You can see him. He's waiting. He waits multiple times. Like he'll get a screen and it's not the guy he wants to go after. He'll get another screen. Like two, three times in the same possession. Eventually he's going to get to Peyton Pritchard and it was leading to a wide open three at one point. It was leading to Butler scoring on Pritchard at one point. I don't get it. I don't get how anybody that was thinking about this from a schematic standpoint that was game planning for the series. As we know, Joe Mazzullo was game planning for the series. I don't know. And I know that Grant hasn't been the same defender. I'm not even saying it has to be Grant, but why does Pritchard have to play? And I know that he cut down the rotation. So maybe guys are tired. Maybe that's part of it. And Pina mentioned maybe there was some fatigue factor, but I don't understand. Even if you don't want to play Grant, why do you have to play Pritchard? Play White more minutes. Play Brogdon even more minutes. Play Smart even more minutes. I know Smart was dealing with a little bit of an injury at one point there. Play Jalen and Tatum as much as you possibly can. I just, I don't think that this should be a factor going forward. I don't believe that Pritchard should be getting minutes. And if you are going to give him minutes, okay, if you are going to give him minutes, do it when Butler's off the court. If Butler's on the court, you can get away with it. It's not like Gabe Vincent or Caleb Martin or Kyle Lowry is going to mismatch hunt. Jimmy Butler is going to mismatch hunt. He sees Pritchard getting on the court. Might as well be sponsored by Target. He's going right at the guy. I, I, I cannot comprehend that decision by Joe Mazzulla. It is unbelievable to me. All right, great stuff on the calls, guys. Remember, if you want to leave a voicemail after game two of the series on Friday night, we'll be potting for you after that on Friday. 617-396-7172, the number. You can also email us at offthepike at gmail.com. All right, a lot more to get into. I do want to get to one Sox related note in just a second here. Welcome back into Off the Pike. All right, I did want to get to this real quickly. Doc Rivers, of course, let go earlier in the week, and I'm just sort of wondering what his legacy is. He won a championship with Kevin Garnett, who was the best player of his generation. You can give me the Ben Wallace stuff. He won all the defensive players of the year. Of course, KG won defensive player of the year at 08, and KG could switch on to guards, guard basically any position. And he won his championship with Garnett, as we mentioned, unbelievable defensive player, unbelievable player in general. Pierce, a Hall of Famer. And Ray Allen, one of the greatest shooters of all time. I mean, we're talking about he's in the family photo of the best shooters ever. And he's now 16 and 33 when his team has three wins in a series. Think about that. If you juxtapose that with Spolster, who the Celtics are going up against right now, Spolster is 21 and 11 in those games. Steve Kerr is 23 and 11. Doc has lost three 3-1 leads, four other 3-2 leads, and a 2-0 lead. He is 6-10 in game seven. And remember, this is where the whole Doc thing, maybe I'm just scarred by what happened with the Celtics, because remember, he signed a five-year extension with the Celtics in 2011, and then he was out in 2013, he goes to the Clippers, they trade him away there because Doc didn't want to be part of a rebuild. He said he didn't have it in his heart, right? So he goes there, tries to latch on with that group. Never made it to a conference finals with the Clippers. They didn't make it to the conference finals until after he left, right? They lost to the Thunder in 14, lost to the Rockets in that epic collapse in 2015. Then in 2020, he gets the Kawhi Paul George tandem. They lost to the Nuggets after being up three games to one in the bubble. And then he goes to the Sixers. He loses to the Hawks with Trey Young in 2021. I remember that's the whole Ben Simmons situation, but still, Doc was the coach. Lost to the Heat in 2022 last year, and now he lost this lead to the Celtics. He's coached Paul Pierce, Ray Allen, Kevin Garnett, Chris Paul, Blake Griffin, Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, Joel Embiid, and James Harden. He has won championship, and he has not been to the conference finals since he left the Celtics. The guy that replaced him in Boston after they decided to rebuild and Doc quit on the team, Brad took the Celtics to the Eastern Conference Finals three times. Ime took the Celtics to the conference finals and the finals. Joe Mazzulla took the Celtics to the conference finals. Of course, this year, although we had definitely some questions about Joe Mazzulla in this game tonight, Doc is the guy that wanted to get ahead and get out of his contract with the Celtics and try to latch onto another team to get another championship. I just don't see how anyone looks at Doc Rivers. And I know Stephen A. Smith was complaining that Doc got fired and all that. I don't know how anybody thinks he's a great coach. His crowning achievement is something that most coaches in the NBA could have done. Don't you think a lot of coaches could have won a championship with Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce and Ray Allen? And remember, that team was built on its defense, and that defense was put together by Tom Thibodeau, who teams across the league started to use his principles. That's how they started to, that's how Tom Thibodeau became the head coach of the Bulls. Everybody wanted his principles. And we can get into a whole different thing about him and the minute totals and all that different type of stuff. But the real problem with, Doc Rivers is I just don't see the achievement. I mean, you look at Eric Spolster, for example, post LeBron. He brought the heat to the finals and he's in his third trip to the conference finals since LeBron left. The greatest player of his generation left. And Eric Spolster has had this team back in the conference finals three times. Doc hasn't been back since he hasn't coached Garnett and Pierce. And he's coached really good players. The players that he's coached are much better than the players Spolster has coached. And Jimmy Butler's in that conversation, of course. But We went through the list, Kawhi, Chris Paul, Blake Griffin, Paul George, all these guys, Joel Embiid, he's coached MVPs, right? And you think about it throughout sort of the history of the NBA, guys winning with different type of teams, like going back to Greg Popovich, he won with the Twin Towers early, and then he won with Duncan as arguably the best player at that particular point in time. But Then in 14, it's pace and space, and he didn't even like that. He didn't even like the three. Remember, Popovich talks about all the time, he thinks the three has ruined the game and all that. So I just look at Doc Rivers, and isn't it fair to say what has made Doc a considered to be a great coach in 2008 was the players and the GM Danny Ainge that put the team around him? The whole idea of Doc saying after that game six and prior to game seven that analytically we won by 20, that's when I knew the Celtics were going to beat Doc Rivers and company. So it appears maybe he gets a different job, but I just don't understand the appeal of Doc Rivers. He burns out all these different destinations. He quit on the Celtics way back when. I just don't see how anybody could look at Doc Rivers and think he's a great coach. I don't know what he does to really help his players. And not to diminish like the guy has been an NBA coach for a long period of time, but I just don't see greatness in Doc Rivers. All right. I did want to get to the Red Sox quickly here because they end up beating Seattle, which they needed to do. They beat him on Tuesday as well. So they take two of three in the series after the slump. And the slump had been tough because Sale was so good on Saturday. Paxton was so good on Friday. And unfortunately, you lose both those games because Jansen gives it up. And then you're not good on Sunday. And Hauk is not good. I'll get to him in a second in that game on Monday. And a couple of things. First of all, big news for Raphael Devers. Marco Gonzalez was terrible in this game for Seattle. They beat him up, but Rafi singled off him in the first, and he got another single off a lefty in the fifth inning. And this is big because one of the things that I've thought about with Rafi is if he wants to be an elite player, because he's already an elite slugger and all that, and he's improved immensely in terms of his fielding. But if he truly wants to be considered one of the best players in the sport, he needs to start hitting left-handed pitching. So two hits tonight, because if you look at the numbers on the season... 228 against lefties, 279 on base percentage, and a 770 OPS. Last year, 272, 315, 424, 739. 2021, 278, 345, 405, 751. So the point being, he's never really been good against lefties, and he's not getting better. So he's hitting for a little bit more power this year against lefties. I hope that this sort of gets him going, and I know it's just one game, but he needs to start hitting lefties because you think about some of the best hitters in the sport, for example. Jordan Alvarez, who scares the shit out of me every time he plays the Red Sox. His numbers against lefties this season, as a left-handed hitter, 326, 373, 587, 960. Think about a guy like Ronald Acuna Jr., who the Red Sox just played. 350, 430, 607, 1036 against righties as a right-handed hitter. This is the neighborhood that Rafael Devers, with that $330 million contract, needs to be living in. He needs to be one of the best 5-10 to 10 hitters in Major League Baseball, and right now, What's holding him back is he chases way too many pitches. That's been going on throughout the history of his career. And secondarily, he does not hit left-handed pitching. He needs to do a better job of hitting left-handed pitching because if he wants to be in that category, he needs to start doing that. And unfortunately, it just hasn't happened. I don't want to be too critical of Rafi because he's a great player. I'm not saying that he's not a great player, but bottom line is, if he wants to be in MVP conversations down the road, got to start hitting lefties. And hopefully tonight was the start of something. Uh by the way, Verdugo left the game on Tuesday, nailed a double off the wall, and then he was running around the bases, groin tightness. They say it's precautionary, so let's not get too worried about that. Okay. Bayo in this game on Wednesday night. Good outing, but a weird outing. He had issues with his command, which hasn't been an issue this season. Back-to-back walks in the second inning. Then he struck out to Oscar Hernandez with a nasty singer. Stuff was nasty all night. And and nearly gave up a three-run home run, would have been out of 22 or 30 parks, but luckily to Trammell, but luckily the win took that one down. Then in the third inning, walks another batter, hits Crawford with a slider, walks another batter, and luckily he gets out of that with a strike out of Suarez. But in this game on Wednesday, he walked five guys, which is a season high. He hadn't walked more than two in a start this entire season. And this has sort of been one of the big improvements that we've seen this year with Bayo. is if you look at the numbers in terms of, the walk rate this season, 6.7% entering the game on Wednesday. That was in the 68th percentile, so well above average. You go back to last year, 10.1%, which was in the 20th percentile. This was the biggest issue with Brian Bale last year was his command. So five walks in this game, 25 batters, that's 20%. The worst guy amongst starting pitchers, to put on the metric man hat here, is Brad Keller at 19.9%. So he was worse than the worst starter in Major League Baseball in terms of the command. Now, the strikeout rate this year, almost at 50, almost in the 50th percentile, on the 49th percentile at 22.9%. Tonight, he had seven, so that's 28%. That would be in the top 15. So that just sort of tells you the stuff was playing, and that's how he got himself out of some jams. And if you look at it, just the three hits. So the stuff was filthy. 49 swings, he had 13 whiffs, which is a 38.8% whiff rate. Only one starter this year is north of 36% as it pertains to the whiff rate. That's just... The percentage of pitches that a batter swings at and completely whiffs. The only guy north of 36% is Spencer Strider, who basically leads pitching in every category in terms of swings and misses, strikeouts, all that different type of stuff. On the season, 27.3% for Bayo, slightly above average in the 59th percentile. Tonight, he's at 38.8%. The batted ball is pretty much the same of what we've come to see. The previous four starts to this one, he was at 65.6% in terms of the ground ball rate. That was third among starters during that stretch because everything has so much sync on it. The changeup's going away from hitters, right? Disappearing. The batted balls in this game, seven ground balls, 58.3%. So that was there. So the stuff was unreal. I mean, he got 13 called strikes with a sinker. <laughs> that stuff was nasty. He got five whiffs on nine swings with a changeup. So actually the stuff, I would argue that it's the best it's been all season. And he's got nasty stuff. He, You could argue he has the best stuff on the staff. I mean, Sale, of course, we know what he's been historically. Paxson's got a good fastball, but he's got a nasty sinker. He's got a really good changeup. His slider's been effective this year. This stuff is electric. The one issue that I'd have in this game, I mentioned the walks. This is the disappointment. And the Red Sox win the game 12-3, but he should have gone more than five innings. You have stuff like that. You should be going more than five innings. So that's the one step back that he took in this game. So it's a weird outing, right? Because the hit and miss stuff was better than it's been all season long, but the command was worse than it's been all season long. So I'm more encouraged than anything else because maybe it's just something they look at, they go back, they say, hey, you were doing this and they fix it, right? And he did show the ability to get out of some jams, which is great to see. But this is a game where he, based on the stuff that he had, he easily should have gone seven innings, give up one run and have... 11 strikeouts based on the stuff he had, and he just didn't have the command, which is the only disappointing thing. By the way, I would like to say it's really nice to have Turner in this lineup because he hits the home run to make it five to nothing in the second inning. He now has home runs in back-to-back games, got Gonzalez on a hanging curveball, entering Wednesday's 20th in baseball and strikeout rated 14.5%, and he's so good to have at the top of that order where He's hitting 269, entering this game with a 360 on base percentage. He's very difficult to strike out. It's just a great guy to have in front of your power hitters because the comparison between him and J.D. Obviously, J.D. in his prime, one of the best hitters in the sport, had for a four-year run, he was one of the top five hitters in Major League Baseball. But as J.D.'s gotten a little bit older and he doesn't have the same power that he did previously, he strikes out more. So at this point, Turner is an upgrade over J.D. Martinez. Heimblum got that one right. And Turner is the perfect fit because you have enough guys, whether it's Yoshida, whether it's Rafi, Duran's hitting for power, Casas is starting to come alive. So when you have all those different guys in the lineup, it's more than enough with Turner, even if the power numbers aren't there. Although, like I said, past two games, starting to hit for a little bit of power, that's massive just to sort of have that guy that is a very difficult guy to pitch to, that pest at the top of the lineup. That's what I love about Turner. Okay, news-related item for the Red Sox. You may have seen that Pavetta was hanging out in the bullpen. Alex Cora said after the game, Pavetta's going to the bullpen, which, thank you, it's something this team needed, although I'm not sure he's going to be good there. If you look at his start the other day on Tuesday, luckily the Red Sox win this game, but he gets the first two hitters of the inning and the fourth inning. Up until that point, no runs. Then he gives up a single to Suarez. No big deal. Single, two out single. It's all right. Then he walks Rowley. One of the biggest problems he has. Five pitches, three of the four balls that he threw, non-competitive. Hernandez then tripled on a ball that Duran dove for. It would have been a hit no matter what, but it's a triple because Duran dies for it. That makes it a 4-2 game. And by the way, it was a four-seamer middle-middle. It was a bad pitch, but you knew... Once that happens, where Duran dies for it and he misses it, and duran has been really good in the field, that was obviously a misplay in that particular situation, you knew Pavetta is going to come undone, right? So what happens after that? 4-2, Trammell homers on a four-seamer, middle-middle, 93 miles an hour. Because Pavetta, he just doesn't deal with adversity well when he's on the mound. It just falls apart for him so quickly. So if you look at the numbers now over the last six starts, 839 ERA, which was 76 out of 77 starters during that stretch. 610 FIP, which was 75th, 166 whip, rather, which is 75th, 301 opponent's batting average, 72nd, and the win probability added 74th in Major League Baseball during that stretch. On the season, the hard hit rate, balls off the bat 95 plus, it's at 51.3%. Only Brady Singer and Michael Kopik are worse. 34 or 13.4% rather barrel percentage. Only four starters are worse and 2.03 home runs per nine, only 10 starters are worse. ERA, WHIP, FIP, hard hit rate, barrel percentage, all worse than they were last season. He's getting worse, not getting better. And he's now 30 years old. It's over for him in terms of a starter. Alex Cora made that abundantly clear. He can't pitch against the Yankees. 306, 978 OPS, Blue Jays, 272, 824. He can't pitch in the division. I'm glad that Cora made the announcement that He's out of the rotation and he's going to pitch out of the bullpen. I just don't believe he's going to be very effective there because he's not good the first time through the order. Now, the guy that I would put into this rotation, he's going to be activated on Friday is Cutter Crawford. And I know they're going to have Cutter Crawford in a bullpen role and Whitlock pitched the other day as well in Worcester. He looked good. He's going to have another outing in Worcester before he comes back with the big club. But if you look at Crawford, 2.9% walk rate on the season, that's in the 98th percentile. 29.3% hard hit rate. Balls off the bat 95 plus. That's in the 98th percentile. He is the opposite of Nick Pavetta. He doesn't walk anybody and he doesn't give up any loud contact. Spin rate with this heater is in the 89th percentile. So what that means is that four seamer, it's staying up in the strike zone because of the spin rate, right? It plays harder than 94.7 because it's above the swing path of the batter. That's why the batting average against that pitch for him this year is at... 176 he can throw to lefties and righties as well which is massive obviously 218 against lefties 205 against righties the chase rate is at 39.5 percent that's in the 98th percentile and the reason his chase rate is that good is because of the fact that he's always working from ahead he doesn't walk anybody so he's working from ahead and guys naturally when he's throwing these pitches out of the zone they think it's going to be a strike and they're swinging and they're missing. And that's where he's getting his strikeouts. That's where he gets a lot of weak contact as well, based on that hard hit number. So I would put him in the rotation. I would put Hoke in the bullpen as well as, I know is in there. I don't think he's going to be very effective, but you can at least use Pavetta as a long guy. I put, you know what Pavetta would be good for a 9-4 game, <laughs> right? You're losing 9-4. Hey, Nick, eat up some innings, buddy. Come on, let's go. Get in there, Nick. That's what I do with him. As it pertains to Hoke, it happened again on Monday. He's on the hook for four earned. He gave up a two run bomb to Rowley. Again, second time through the order. This is when this happens, okay? He gives up the ball. He looks like the best pitcher in the world, and then he just completely comes undone. So 71 plate appearances now the first time through, and 71 plate appearances the second time through. So the number is actually even on the season. Perfect time to do this. 111 opponent's batting average the first time through, 375 the second time through. So that's a 264 point difference. The only qualified hitter that is north of hitting 350 this year is Luisa Rise who won the batting title last year. Guys that are hitting the second time through the order against Hulk or at 375, 25 points higher than the guy that is going to lead major league baseball in hitting this year for the second straight season. Now, that 111 the first time through, no hitter is south of 150 on the season. Hulk's at 111. So basically he goes from Making guys look like the worst hitters in Major League Baseball to making guys look like Ted Williams. That's how bad it is. That's how different it is in terms of the first time through, the second time through. The OPS goes from 324 to 946. So basically, there's nine hitters that are north of 946, and there is no hitter south of 480 as it pertains to the OPS, 324 the first time through. So look, he's had multiple chances now to prove that he's a starter in Major League Baseball. And the numbers are getting worse the second time through. For his career, it's 281, 737. And as we said this year, it's 375 and 946. So he hasn't been better. Now, the positive thing about Houck, if you compare him to, of course, Nick Pavetta, is the numbers are really good the first time through. I believe that Houck, and we saw it last season, he can be a legitimate bona fide weapon out of the bullpen. So if it's me, Crawford's going into the rotation, Houck's going into the bullpen. You're still going to have Kluber there to eat up innings. You have Sale. You have Paxton. Hopefully that keeps going in that direction. You have Bayo and you add Whitlock there. You put Hulk in the bullpen. And I believe Hulk can really help this bullpen because there's been a lot of innings on a couple of these guys. So that's what I'd be doing. I would put Crawford in the rotation. That's the big move I would make. I'm glad to hear that Pavetta's is not going out there anymore because the guy is allergic to soft contact. He's allergic to having good command. He's just, the reality is this. He's just not good. He's not a good pitcher. OK, and hopefully now going forward, we'd never have to see this guy start in a Red Sox uniform again. All right. We'll be back with you on Friday after game two Celtics and Heat. Hopefully we're coming to you after a win for the C's. Remember, you can leave us a voicemail 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. Email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Surdy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat with you guys after game two.